would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, where we'll be looking at verses 18 through 26 tonight. As we look at this passage from Ecclesiastes chapter 2 this evening, I think that it's helpful for us to keep in mind that this book is a book of wisdom. It's a book about learning how to live in this world with wisdom. Now, wisdom literature throughout the Old Testament has this sort of common thread about it. It holds out two paths for us. There's the path of wisdom in which there is to be found life and blessing and God's grace. It's a path that looks beyond the here and now to the eternal. Then there's the path of foolishness. It's a path that leads to despair, it leads to heartache, it leads ultimately to destruction. The path of foolishness looks and feels desirable for it offers fulfillment and it offers pleasure for a time because its only perspective is on the here and now. There is no view toward the eternal. This is the contrast that is portrayed throughout the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. And we see it throughout this book of Ecclesiastes. And of course, his calling to you is that you heed the call of wisdom, that you as a child of God learn to live in light of eternity, not being driven by the immediate gratification that the world offers to us in so many different arenas of life. We've all been around one of those precocious little children who sort of incessantly asks questions, why, why, why. They're never satisfied with what you give them. They always want more. As you read through this book, you sort of get the feeling that the writer of Ecclesiastes was like that as a child, always asking questions, always wanting to get at the real foundation of life, striving to uncover what true wisdom and true foolishness is all about. And this is what wisdom is. It's getting at the bottom of things and it's understanding why. We could say that wisdom is learning to live in a sin-cursed world in a God-honoring way. Why am I doing the things that I'm doing? And why should I do the things that I do? Why should I live this particular way and not another? These are the questions that wisdom answers. But the larger question is, how do we know? The Bible holds out the two paths for us, but how do we know which path is the path of wisdom and which is the path of foolishness? The stakes are high. We could look at the book of Proverbs in which the stakes there are life and death. The path of foolishness ends in eternal destruction. The path of the wise leads to eternal life. And if the stakes are that high, then we better make sure that we're on the right path. But how do we know and how can we really know Those are the questions that we hear in the world all around us. There was a Broadway play a number of years ago called The Man of La Mancha, which became a movie in the 70s. Maybe some of you remember it. In that story, the main character, Don Quixote, has pretty much lost his mind. He believes himself to be a knight on a noble quest to fight an evil sorcerer on behalf of his fair lady. But in reality, he's a bumbling old man wearing rusted armor that doesn't even fit him. He carries a a dull sword that probably couldn't even penetrate the skin if it hurt you. It'd probably have a bruise at best. And the evil sorcerer that he's fighting takes the form of a giant windmill that he must defeat. 
And the fair lady whose honor he fights for is really the town prostitute. But in the end, not only does he find meaning in life through his insanity, but in his noble quest, he touches the lives of others along the way. And the real question you see is, well, who is wise and who is the fool? Who is sane and who is insane? Who is noble and who is the idiot? Who's to say that the man of La Mancha in his rusted-out armor fighting windmills is crazy while everyone else is normal? What if he's the only sane one and everyone else is really insane? Where do you get the idea of a straight line to tell me that the universe is imperfect? What standard are you using to determine worth and value and purpose in life? If it's just what you say it is, if meaning is whatever you construct it to be, if it's subjective as the world tells us, and everyone, if everyone is just supposed to be allowed to pursue whatever they want to pursue in life, then how are you any different than the man of La Mancha riding around with your trusty sidekick on his donkey fighting windmills and not always winning? There has to be an external, objective standard of wise and foolish living if we are ever going to make sense out of life. Every single day of our lives, we are surrounded by voices that are telling us to fill our lives with distractions. Ignore your own mortality. Live for the moment. Think of yourself and your own desires. Live whatever way you want to live as long as you are at the center of your life. It seems as though hardly a day goes by when we are not tempted ourselves to buy into the lies of those vain pursuits. As much as we might see the pursuit of foolish, vain pursuits all around us, we might be tempted to those vain pursuits ourselves. But even that is nothing new. The timeless nature of God's Word tells us that there is nothing new under the sun. And Paul in Romans chapter 1 says that they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. You see, this is what the writer of Ecclesiastes is really exposing within our hearts. He's seeking to uncover the deep motives that lie within, the motives that we all have to look to the creation to find meaning and purpose and significance. He's exposing the tendency that there is within every human heart to replace the spiritual with the physical. And the reason that the author of Ecclesiastes can say with authority that this is wise and this is foolish is because he looks ultimately to the God of creation who has established objectivity in his world. And one of the critical ways that the author pushes you to see what you are really living for is he follows every other worldview that there is out to its logical conclusion. And then he reduces that worldview to absurdity. And so as we read, let's read knowing that this is God's timeless word of truth to us. And consider, as we ought to every time we come to Scripture, consider how His word exposes our hearts and challenges us to live in such a way that we might be people of the Lord who long for greater and greater wisdom in our own lives. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. 
So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Now, the book of Ecclesiastes has been labeled the most pessimistic book in the Bible. And at times, you can understand why when you read in such places as we do here in verse 18, where he states that he hates his toil in life. Now, as we've been studying this book together on Wednesday nights in our senior high large group gatherings, I've been trying to make the case that Ecclesiastes is really one of the most hope-filled books that we can study because it drives us to the only one who offers us redemption from the futility of this world. And so even tonight as we look at this passage where we might be tempted toward pessimism in our own lives, it is vital that we look at Scripture. It is vital that we look at all of life through the lenses of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the first question that I think we need to answer is, why does the writer of this book despair? What is it about life that is so discouraging for him? And the answer is seen peppered really throughout the entire book. And the answer is this. The reason that he despairs is because of the reality of death. He despairs with all of the pursuits that he sets his heart upon in this life because in the end, we could say that death is the great equalizer. In the end, if this life is all that there is, then it doesn't matter if you are wealthy or poor. It doesn't matter if you were well-liked or you were despised. It doesn't matter if you die alone or you die surrounded by friends and family. Death comes to us all. And none of the things that we pursue in life for meaning can be taken with us beyond the grave. In the end, everyone dies the, st- dies the same, stripped naked with nothing that they can take with them. And he says as much clearly in chapter 5. Look there at verse 15. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. And it's this reality of death that we as a culture have become very gifted at trying to deny. As a nation, we spend more on cosmetic alterations than any other nation in the world. We've all seen those sad celebrities who don't even look like real people anymore because of a number of surgeries that they've had. As a society, we idolize youth and beauty. And with that comes a tendency to detest old age and sickness. Those are things that remind us of our own mortality. And the longer that we can push off the inevitable from our minds, the more we believe that we can enjoy life. And so the weak, the frail, the sick, those with gray hairs, the ones who really have wisdom, are the ones who are pushed aside. 
They are marginalized, while the young and attractive and sleek are elevated. But no matter how much we elevate the young and try to ignore death, we simply cannot get away from the reality that death comes to us all. And so the reason that he despairs as he considers his own mortality is because he is looking at life in this world without reference to God. The writer of this book, for a time, assumes those different pursuits of life. He takes upon himself his heart pursuit to look for meaning and significance in this world, continuing to come up empty because without reference to the Lord, life under the sun truly is meaningless. And what we'll see is that it's our perspective toward life that really changes everything. Viewing life under the sun leads to despair. Viewing life through the sun, capital S-O-N, leads to great hope in all things. Now, if you remember from previous studies that we've had as we've looked at this book together, it's the king of Israel who pursues meaning in just about every sphere that we could imagine. He pursues wealth. He pursues pleasure. He pursues the finer things of life. He pursues architectural structures and more. We could call it a comprehensive pursuit as he looks for fulfillment, as he looks for satisfaction and meaning and all that this life has to offer. And in this section here, beginning in verse 18, he looks to his work. He looks to his labors and realizes that this too, under the sun, is meaningless. As you think about your own work in life, no doubt you have felt that sense of worthlessness from your labors. Maybe some of you struggle with that tendency on a daily basis. Others of you perhaps more periodically. But at some point in our lives, we have all felt as though our labor is worthless. Whether you go away to an office where you work 50 plus hours a week, whether you work at home, whether it's your labor as a student, whether it's work as a homemaker, whatever you do, we have all felt that sense of worthlessness, monotony, vanity from all of our efforts. We turn in projects. We meet deadlines. We pay bills. We clean the house. We try to keep things in order, but life just seems to go through these repetitive cycles of tedious labor. So what is it about work that we tend to look to to find purpose and meaning? Why labor? Why is that an area that seems to pull at our hearts deceiving us into thinking that we can find purpose and significance there. Why is it such an area of temptation? Well, work, we know, of course, is a divine gift. It's something that the Lord gave us. We'll see later. We'll talk for a moment about the way in which the Lord, of course, has given us labor even before sin came into the world. And it is something that we are to delight in. But as sin has come into the world, it has marred and distorted every good thing that the Lord has created. And because of the sin within our own hearts, we have that tendency to take those good things and to elevate them to ultimate things. And how do we do this? Well, how do we tend to make our labor an ultimate thing? Well, first, we may presume that with much labor and with much effort will come security and stability. This is one of the things that is vexing to him, which we'll come back to in a moment. But through your work, you may accumulate more assets, thus assuming that you are protecting yourself against future economic instability. 
And so it's the workaholic who puts in hours and hours at the office, who brings projects home to work on in the evening and on weekends, convincing himself and his family that he's doing that for them, to provide security for them and for their future. Or perhaps we simply pursue work for the sake of leisure. Work is just sort of a necessary evil so that I can move on and do the things that I really want to in life. We sort of live in a culture in which leisure is that ultimate goal. Work is just something that we do so that we can get to the point where we can one day stop working and enjoy life. We do this with this mindset. We tend to see work more of as, as a curse than a calling. We put in our time because we have to. Or we may look to our work as identity markers. Today we are very much defined by our jobs, by the labor that we pursue in life. But according to Ecclesiastes, work is the wrong place to look to for meaning in life. Perhaps the endless hours put in at the office are to show those who are over you that you are serious about your job, that this is your priority in life. Perhaps you are one whose identity is shaped by your vocation, by your achievements. And as a culture, we immerse ourselves in jobs so much that they become the things that shape who we are. You know how it is when you meet someone for the first time, one of the first few questions that you ask them is, what do you do? We ask that because, again, that defines typically who the person is. And, of course, that's a thing that they're typically passionate about, so it's easy to get to know them that way. If we can get them talking about their labor. So what is it about labor that causes him in this chapter to despair? Well, as the author of Ecclesiastes considered all of his labor, he despairs because there are two main problems that make our labors so toilsome and so tedious and so frustrating. And the first is seen in verses 19 and following. Who knows whether this person who comes after me, he writes, will be wise or a fool. The thing that is so vexing for him is that someone else will come along and profit from all of his efforts. Again, with the reality of death looming over him, he knows that all those things that he has worked for will be left to someone else who comes after him. And as he says, you really don't know whether that person will be wise or foolish, whether they will be careful with your investments that you have worked for or whether they will squander it all. Now, certainly this could be a businessman who works, for example, to build a family business and then leaves it to his incompetent son who runs it into the ground. Or it could be in the executive who sacrifices a great deal of time and and effort personally to make a company profitable. But when he leaves, he never knows whether the guy who comes after him will have the sense to make smart decisions. And so all of the work that he's labored for could very easily be flushed away. But it doesn't have to be stuff of that category. It doesn't have to be things like money or real estate or assets of that nature. For example, how do you know that all of your efforts and labors as a parent will be appreciated by your children? One day you will be gone. And how do you know if your child will be wise or foolish? How do you know that all that you have poured into your children will be appreciated as they grow? You don't know if they will be wisdom seekers or not. It could be a teacher investing her life in study and preparation to help her students grow to understand the world that God has created. 
But then as they get older, they toss it all aside, forgetting everything that has been taught to them. You never know if those who come after you are going to be wise or foolish. How do you know that when you're gone, your work is going to be appreciated? How do you know that all of your labor is going to produce anything of lasting value? How do we know that any of our work will produce significance? And really what we could say he is capturing here is something that strikes at the very core of our existence. That we all have this deep frustration within because we have a longing for permanence. A deep desire to do something, to create something that will endure, something that will last. And yet the under the sun reality is that we will spend our whole lives working to gain something that we cannot keep because of death. As we think of this reality, how can we not despair? Leo Tolstoy put it like this. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? And it's this inevitability of death and not knowing what will happen with all of your labor that causes the king of Israel here to despair. But that's not all that's going on here. There's another huge problem that makes his labor frustrating. We see it in verses 22 and 23. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. The thing that creates such trouble for him here is simply the drudgery of work. It's not simply the fact that work will be left behind, all that he's worked for, to someone else who may or may not be wise with those things. But it's the futility of work itself that is toilsome. So not only do others perhaps profit from all of your labors itself, while you are still alive, it is still filled with toil and with trouble. You might deal with dishonesty. You might deal with others who seek to capitalize on all of the things that you have worked hard for. You might deal with the tedious nature of your labor. Again, that monotony of day in and day out struggles as you deal with difficult people. No matter what we work at in life, we experience the thorns of Genesis chapter 3. No matter what job you might take in life, it always takes its toll on you. You will always experience frustration in the things that you do. And think of all the worry that life brings, the anxiety that often impacts our families, the piles of work and the worry that we will never get it all done. And even when you finish your responsibilities, you know that there are more things that are just waiting for you around the corner. And he says in verse 23, the heart is never at rest. You find yourself perhaps lying awake at night, worrying about the things that are coming in the coming weeks. Worrying that you have maybe forgotten something. Worrying that your children are not going to take to heart the words of wisdom that you have sought to instruct them with. The frustration and the anxiety of our work is everywhere, and it's the result of the fall. So while your days are filled with efforts, your nights are filled with this anxious restlessness. Because in a sense, your work never ends. Life under the sun is a weary labor. If we try to find significance in our work, it will only end in disappointment. If you make your work your life, it will leave you empty 
and it will destroy other people whom you love along the way as you have neglected them. Now back in chapter 1, in verse 3, there is this evaluation question that he begins his book with. A question that sort of acts as a grid, determining all of the things that he pursues in this life and whether they truly have value or not. What does a man gain, he says, by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What of lasting value do you have to show from all of your pursuits in life? What kind of difference have you made? Do you have anything of lasting value to show for all of your work? Not a padded bank account, not a little plaque on your mantle that reads salesperson of the year, but what of lasting value do you have from your labors? Now remember, important point as we think about how to interpret the book of Ecclesiastes. One of the things that he's trying to do is to make you feel worse before you feel better. And this is a great point to ask at this, at this point. How's he doing? Is he doing a good job? And he does that not because he's a pessimist. He does that not because he has some sort of melancholy disposition and he wants to just bring everyone else down with him because he can't seem to enjoy life. But he's a realist. He chooses to look at life the way that it really is. You know, if you have abdominal pain in the appendix area, let's say, that seems to get worse and worse, and you finally go to the doctor, you don't want a doctor to tell you, let's just put some ice on it, give it a couple weeks, come back, and we'll see if it's fixed itself. You don't want some superficial diagnosis. You want tests run. You want to find out what's really wrong with you. You want a correct diagnosis. Even if it means surgery, even if it means more pain in the short run, you want it because you know that's the only way that you can get on the path toward healing. You must know what the real problem is so that you can be driven to the right solution. And that's why an honest view toward life that this book offers is so crucial for us. That's why I think the book of Ecclesiastes is one of the greatest apologetic books that we can turn our unbelieving friends to, to press them to consider, are you, with honesty, considering your life and the pursuits that you are setting your hearts upon in this life? You must be driven to the end of yourself so that you might see the answer, so that you might see the hope of the gospel. And notice back in chapter 2, verse 25, or 24 and 25 rather, that his perspective here begins to change. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can find enjoyment? Now, this is the first time in his book that he says anything optimistic. We could call it sort of an oasis of optimism and a wilderness of despair. And so what causes him to begin to find meaning, what is it that causes him to begin to find value in his labors? Well, notice he begins to look at life with God in the picture. He is beginning to see the difference that it makes to live life with the Lord than without him. Now, it could be the same activity. It could be the same toilsome labor in a sense, but with a different orientation of the heart, 
we can find delight in our labors. And so here is this realistic perspective toward our labors. Yes, we live in a world that is filled with hardship. And yes, we are tempted to despair in all of our efforts because of the curse of sin upon this world. Yet it is still a world that God created good. And work and labor is part of that created order. Work itself is something that was given to God's people in the garden even before sin came into the world. We are meant to work. We are designed to labor in life. And we can, by His grace, find great joy in whatever we do because of the redemption of Jesus. So you can do the same job as someone else who doesn't have the hope of the gospel, but your response can, your response ought to be completely different. You can work and you can work and you can choose to get depressed or discouraged, or you can work and you can work and you can choose to delight in the calling of the Lord. We are told in 1 Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And so even in those most mundane parts of life, eating and drinking, things that we do all the time, things that we do more frequently in the coming weeks, even in those things, we are to do them with a heart and a desire to give glory to God. Or in Colossians 3, Paul says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus. And so wherever you labor, whether in school, whether at home, whether in the workplace, you are serving ultimately the Lord Jesus. And so by His grace, we can respond in thankfulness to every task that we take on in life because the Lord is here with us in all things. And we can recognize that all things in our life are good things because all things in life are from our Heavenly Father. And so when it comes to our labor, wise living means learning to live with God in the middle. Not living the lie as though He is somehow removed from our lives. Sort of tangential. Sort of out there, aloof and distant. But that He is here intimately with us at every point in life. And knowing that He has great purpose in all things. And the type of life evaluation questions that this book is driving at are things like this. What keeps you going in life? What makes your life worthwhile? What dreams have captured your heart? What are you convinced that you cannot live without? What in life do you crave most? Why do you really do the things that you do? What are you hoping to get out of your choices and your decisions in life? So if we think of the entire book of Ecclesiastes with sort of these two bookends that are so critical for helping us have the proper perspective as we interpret this book. Again, chapter 1, verse 3, what profit do you have to show from all of your labors as you consider all of the things that you set your heart upon in life? What of lasting value do you have to show from it? And then at the end of the book, chapter 12, verse 13, fear the Lord and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the distinctive mark of the believer in Christ. To the one who is in union with the Lord Jesus, the fear of the Lord is something that is unique to your life. The fear of the Lord is something that only the believer in Christ is capable of doing because of his work, the Holy Spirit within our hearts. So you might go to the same job. You might have the same number of children as your neighbor. You might have all of the same responsibilities and the same broken down house and everything else. But the distinctive mark of the Christian life is the fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord that is expressed in worship. The distinctive mark of the believer in the Lord Jesus is that we, by His grace, are enabled to worship Him. This is why Pastor Brent Williams presses you over and over again to see the priority of worship in your life. It's not just so that He can have job security, but to help us understand that that, you see, is the distinctive mark of the believer. And certainly we worship the Lord corporately on the Lord's Day as we gather. But there is worship going on in every moment of our lives. Again, that's what Paul is capturing in Romans chapter 1. That all of life is either worship of the Creator or worship of the creature. At every point in life, we are either worshiping Him and fearing the Lord and longing for holiness of life that is expressed in obedience to His law, or... At that point in life, we are simply living for our own pleasure and our own desires. And so when we struggle in our lives at times with that tedious nature of our labors, when we have that feeling like we are striving after the wind with nothing to show from all of our efforts, Philip Ryken says, look above the sun to the Son of God. He will raise you up from the dead and will protect your life forever. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful for the truth of your word that points us at every passage of Scripture to our need for the Lord Jesus. And Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for your finished work for us that has purchased that eternal heavenly inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are the one who is preserving us, enabling us to persevere toward that end. Would you enable us even this week as we some have time off from our labor to reflect upon the ways in which perhaps we fail to acknowledge you at every point in life. And instead, may we find great delight as your people redeemed through the work of our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.